Check, check, check. Is this on? Okay. Hey, y'all. Before we get into today's episode, I just wanted to thank the 124 people who registered for our very first live webinar. Since we got so much great feedback about the content that we shared in that webinar, we've decided just to host an event this upcoming Saturday, July 21st. So go to the show notes right now because we only actually have room for 150 attendees, so we expect it to fill up fast. And I'll leave that link in. You can click on it. And then when you go to the Eventbrite, you will just type in free and it'll make your ticket completely free. All right, so we only have room for 150 attendees, so hurry and sign up. It's time for the Creative Real Estate Podcast, your source for out-of-the-box real estate investing strategies brought to you by realbluespruce.com. Welcome back to the Creative Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Adams. And as you know from listening to this show, there are a lot of ways to do real estate. And today we're going to learn a few things that we've never talked about. So I'm happy and excited to have Nathan Tabor. For instance, he does apartment deals. He's done 26 so far, all with creativity, but it's nothing like anything we've talked about. So he's not doing syndications. He's not doing lease options, subject tos, or wraparound mortgage. But there's a lot of very creative things that he's doing. And I'll start off by saying one of the most interesting that we talked about before we got this interview going, and that's that you don't know unless you're asking. The answer is always going to be no, he says, until you ask. With that said, he got a property for $1.075, $1.075 million that was listed for two point three. He wouldn't have known unless he asked. There's a lot more that we'll cover, but before that, Nathan, tell us a bit about you and how you got into real estate back in 2006. Yeah. Hey, Adam, thanks for having me uh, on your podcast. Uh, first off, I got involved in real estate in a really odd way. I was not striving to be a real estate investor. I'd owned a soy company with my brother. I had a buy here, pay here car lot at a, a internet company emails. We sent over a billion emails in 10 years. And a guy walked into my office in 2006 and was like, Hey, I've got this 18 unit apartment complex. It's uh, basically vacant, but I've got to sell it. Um, you know, you know, anybody wants to buy it. I'd never seen the guy, never spoken to him, didn't know who he was, but I went and asked the first five banks that I had done business with. I'd okay. rented about $80 million of deals, non-real estate through these uh -huh. banks. And they all said, no. Wow. You know, but when you look at an 18 unit and you, you know, I'd never done real estate, didn't know various information, but 18 times $500 a month, I could kind of figure out what it would bring in. And the six bank, um, finally said yes. And they gave me a hundred percent financing and a hundred percent renovation. Now this was 2006. That doesn't happen really anymore. Um, right behind that 18 unit was a 12 unit. So there was 30 units there and that bank, that one bank did both deals for me. Uh, but I had, I stopped asking at the first deal, the first no from the bank, I wouldn't have made $232,000 in eight and a half months. I love it. Uh, but because I kept asking, I, I was like, you know, I run these numbers. They make really good sense. I don't know real estate, but I knew, you know, business, I knew, you know, P and L's and expense sheets and that, but I kept going until I found someone. And what I learned later, those first five banks said no, not because of me. They said no because of the type of property it was. Okay. But at the time, they didn't tell me that. They didn't say, no, we don't like vacant or near vacant with high deferred maintenance. 
mm -hmm. uh, properties. They just told me no, which I thought it was me. Okay. But it wasn't me. It was the property. Gotcha. I found a bank that liked that type of property. Cool. So that, was, that was the sixth bank. That was the sixth one that you talked to. The sixth bank was the one who actually said yes to the deal. Let's, let's just pause for a moment to, you know, press that upon the listeners. What put you from hearing no three times, four times, and even five times from banks? What made it so that Nathan Tabor heard no five times, but he still asked a sixth bank? Because most people would have stopped on the first or second. Yeah, just the determination of, you know, if you feel like you've been you know, called to do something or you've got this passion that you want to do it, most people do. Like I'd say 98, 99% of people, when they get told no the first time, they just quit. Mm -hmm. They don't yep. redo their investor packet. They don't redo their business plan. Most of them don't even have a business plan or an investor packet. But they get told no and they're like, oh, well, it must be me. And they get their feelings hurt and they go home. But I was like, hey, there's an, I'm a, I'm an entre serial entrepreneur. I've had 25 companies since 99. So it was just like, hey, this makes sense. These numbers add up. I'm going to find someone that can do this deal for me. So it was just the persistence. The no was just like, well, that's, that's not where I should be. So, you know, if you're in that position where someone, you've been told no once, or you feel like you're going to be told no, you know, learn from that failure. Don't let it be a failure. Let it be a learning experience. What do you need yeah. to do better? What do you need to write down? What do you need to explain more? Yeah. Um, you know, when I went into that, that sixth bank, I had sent the, the banker and emailed him so much information that when I went to meet with him, all he asked me to do is bring one year tax return and my wife with me. Oh, yeah. I remember yeah. hearing this on someone else's podcast. I love this yeah. story. Why don't you tell him why he had your wife there? Uh, so, you know, I go in, I was like, well, that's, we, you know, we asked me to bring my wife. She's not on any of my corporate LLC paperwork or anything. So I was like, I've never been asked that and never been asked that since. Mm -hmm. But this was an older gentleman, uh, not older, 65. He'd been with Bank of America. And when I went in, you know, I'm sitting on, on the other side of his desk and he's, he's sitting there talking and he basically talks to my wife the entire time asking what kind of guy I am. How do I treat other people? You know, what's my ethics and my integrity? Ask me like two questions and five minutes into it. He just, Adam, he just spins in his chair and turns his back to us. <laughs> what were you thinking? He doesn't ask us anything about the property. He doesn't ask me really any questions about anything. I'm, I'm looking at my wife going, you know, I'm mouthing to her. Do we need to leave? <laughs> like what? And he just, he's got his back and I can see he's typing in five minutes later, he turns around and says, here, here's a, full commitment letter, 100% financing, 100% renovation. We can close in less than 30 days. Wow. That's cool. And it was really unique in the sense that, I mean, I could have thrown an attitude and been like, why do you want to talk to my wife? <laughs> yeah. Have anything to do with this? Yep. Or, you know, built this wall or came up with all these excuses. But it's like, he says he'll do the deal. He just wants to talk to my wife. So I took her in with me. That is, that's really, really cool. I, we may, um, there's a few things about you that I think we could discuss real quick. And then I want to get into more details about all the creative real estate that you've been doing. One yep. is uh, where you're from. So Kernersville, right? Kernersville, North Carolina. What, why don't you tell me how many people live in Kernersville? Uh, there's about 30,000 folks that live in Kernersville. We're right in between 
um, Greensboro, North Carolina, High Point, and Winston-Salem. So it used to be a little okay. bedroom community, but it's grown over the years, and it's a you know, decent-sized city now. Okay, okay. And so you're, you've done all of these deals, which is 26-plus deals, at least 26 apartment deals. And, um, and those are all local to you, right? They're right. within 45 minutes is the farthest? 45 minutes the furthest from my house, correct. So let me ask, why are you staying so close to your house? So the deals I look to do are, are class C, high deferred maintenance, high occupancy, or even zero occupancy. Probably half of the buildings I've done have been completely vacant. Um, you know, one of the deals I did over in Greensboro was 56 units, uh, had been vacant for three years. I bought it from a bank for $86,000, but then we did a million and a half dollars worth of renovations. Hmm. And, and for me, and I, and I've, I've consulted with other people and I, I've, I've helped other people, you know, do properties like this. But for me on that, when I'm going to sink a million dollars, million and a half dollars, and we're redoing everything, I want to be on site most every day or at least every other day making sure everything's being done right okay so you like the control you you like to micromanage it a bit well it, it and then so the other side of it is the micromanage the other side of it i save about 30 percent on my renovation cost by not paying a general contractor a fee to manage the property mm-hmm. so you know if it's taking us six months to do a million and a half dollar renovation that's a $450,000 savings to me. So you're essentially making $450,000 yourself in six by, months. By managing my own, you know, I still have to have higher licensed trades in that. Yep. But in North Carolina, if your renovation on a unit is under $30,000 per unit, mm-hmm. you don't have to have a general contractor. You just have to have licensed trades, electrical okay. plumbing, all of those, they can pull their own permits. If it's okay. over $30,000, you have to have a general con, but I've never renovated a unit that's been over 30,000 unit. Okay. So on this one that where you said you purchased it for 86 K. Yes. And then you went in and put one point, what? 1.5 million into it. 1.5. So how many units was that? F- 56 units. So barely under that 30 K. Well, and you know, 250,000 of that was exterior paving, mm-hmm parking lot curbing. So we were at uh, $23,000 a door roughly yeah. um, for the interior side of it. Okay. And what made you feel comfortable to purchase something for just 86,000 and then put one and a half million into it? Like for the audience, for the listeners who are, it sounds drastic. It sounds like a lot. It sounds risky. Uh, what is it that mitigated the risk for you to allow you to want to yeah. Such a huge renovation. In. So, you know, having, you know, done this and I, I've had my failure too, uh, or several failures. We'll talk about those because this is the success side of it. When you do any type of real estate, single family, multifamily, commercial, whatever, there's only a, the area that you're in will dictate how much that property's worth. Cap rate, other rentals in the area, you know, so it's knowing your numbers and knowing your area. So I knew these, these units would rent for roughly $600 a month. Worst 550, most 650. So I always run my numbers at the low end. So I ran all the numbers at 550. So I knew upon renovation at the cap rate, 
that was in that area that had held strong for a number of years, what that property would be worth upon stabilization. So then I run my numbers backwards. I take what it's stabilized at, what the renovations are, what the purchase, what the broker fees, any, any cost I have into it, and then how much money could I make? And then I determine, is that enough to mitigate the risk? Yeah. And I always add 20 or 30% to my renovation. So if it's a million dollar renovation, I plan on a 1.3 million because once you lift some floors or take sheetrock off or roofing, you just, there's some things you can't know until you remove stuff. So it's really playing the numbers game backwards though. I see too many people in real estate, they try to run them forward. Well, I can buy this for 150, I can put 30,000 in it and I can sell it for 250, but everything in there, that area has sold for no more than 200 guess what you're going to sell that property for 200 or less. You're probably not yeah. going to get the 250. Yeah. So Adam, that, that's really on the creative side is, you know, making sure when you're looking at a deal, don't try to run your numbers forwards, try to run them backwards. Does it make sense? Can you make money on the worst case scenario? There you go. If you make money on the worst case scenario, then you're going to kill it on the best case scenario. Okay. I, I like that. So one of the main reasons why you're staying so close to home is because you like to manage them yourself. You save a half a million every half a year, uh, AKA you're making it. And the other, uh, what other reasons are you not personally, because we said not for the audience yet, but you've actually consulted on over $200 million of apartments, but they're, they're outside your area why are you not a part of those 200 million? Why are you still staying so close? Is there another reason? Well, just, you know, for me and in, in doing what I'm doing, there's no other reason except if I'm going to put my money at risk, mm -hmm. I found that no one cares as much about my money as I do. Mm -hmm. But that's just for me. I mean, there's some people I've got, you know, clients and others and I take, you know, I might take an equity position in, in a deal to help. Um, but those deals that, that I see that when they're doing it outside, you kind of get into the over 100, 150, 200, where you start bringing in the, the tractor trailer uh, containers and you're setting out and you're redoing from a construction side. Okay. Um, and, and it's the, the other, the, probably the biggest thing is just time. I'm just uh, doing as many deals as I've done over the last 11 years. I've really not had time to go out and do deals outside of my market because I've had enough to do you know, here internally where I'm located. Okay. That sounds good. I like the answer. You mentioned something. You said, I might take equity in a deal to help. Uh, for the audience, what are you talking about taking equity in, in a deal? You know, so, you know, here's a cr other creative side to it, right? Because I mm -hmm. know what your podcast and, and you've done an excellent job on kind of giving ideas. You know, yes, people always need money, but sometimes they need counsel they need advice. You might have an area that you're really good that you know about how to structure deals. Well, I'll come in and say, well, I'll take a percent or 5% or 10% okay. and help put this deal together. I'll so, help you investor packet or whatever you may need there. On the $200 million of consultations that you've done for other people on their properties throughout the country, some of those or many of those you've actually taken five or 10% of the deal to help them put it together. Is that right? Correct. Okay, great. Yeah. I like that. And that is an extremely creative way to do things. 
Um, yes, I know how to do it. You're saying, yes, I can help you. Um, but like, it's going to take a lot of time and my, my time, my knowledge is worth quite a bit. Um, would you be open to a small 5% into that deal? And I'll help you put everything together. Cause honestly, the value that you're bringing in my mind by helping someone put something together is probably worth more than 50% of the deal. Well, when you're taking five or 10%, I think it's a huge win-win for everybody. Well, and it, it, you know, at the beginning, I didn't obviously know all of that I know now, having done the deals. You know, the second deal I did, the first deal I made a little over $232,000. The second deal, I lost $150,000 on one deal. Okay. And it was, one, it was one issue. And I tell anybody who, if they don't ever hear anything else I say about real estate, don't ever buy anything until you yourself have a letter from the zoning department stating that that property is zoned for what you're buying it for. Okay. I love that. I want to get into, I want to detail that a little bit more. So I'm going to, I'm making a note for the zoning and uh, we'll be coming back to that because there's a lot of other things that you do, including the zoning. Yes. Uh, for creativity on structuring the deal because as you said in the pre-interview you make your money when you buy and it sound that's a a phrase that everybody hears but i think after listening to the podcast today with nathan Tabor, if you've heard you make your money when you buy before it's you're gonna still change your mind about what that really means if you hear all the creative creativity the creative ways that he's doing this so we will get right into that. So serial entrepreneur, did you say 25 companies since 1999? 25 companies. Okay, perfect. And then your first real estate deal was at 18 Plex in 2006, 26 yep. apartments, no syndications ever, but you have raised a little bit of private equity. There was a million dollars that you raised. Was that on one deal? Uh, no, spread over four deals. I, okay. It was one of those where I was growing really fast and needed some down payment assistance. So I went out and, and, you know, raised money to help with the down payment. I had the financing from, from the local banks, but I needed help putting the deal together. Okay. So let's talk about the million dollars that you raised for four deals because you needed help with the down payment since you were spread thin. Um, yes. And go into that a little bit. How did you structure the lending side for your investors? So, you know, with most banks these days, especially if someone owns more than 10% mm -hmm. uh, of an LLC or incorporation, they want them to sign on the bank line. Yep. So before you put a deal together, make sure you know what, whoever your lender is, what their structure is. Uh, with mine, I, you know, I had to give a personal guarantee. Okay. So essentially, um, they had a part of that deal but they were not part of any of the paperwork of that deal. They had a, I have a parent company. Okay. They had a percentage of that parent company. Okay. And they had a guarantee for their money to be paid back in this structure. Okay. So I did a 12% guarantee, 12% uh, guarantee a year, plus a percentage of the profit off the deal based on to what they had bought into. Okay. So that LLC that was purchased in the property, are you an owner of the LLC and the investors an owner of the LLC? Uh, I did not make them an owner of the LLC. I, okay. I own, I was a, the member manager, note? made it on a promissory note. note, just a, a one of the, you know, okay. hundred year old generic promissory note that says I Nathan Tabor guarantee that I will pay this back and you'll get a percentage of the profit off this deal. Great. 
And how long into doing deals did you feel like it was time to raise a million dollars on four? Um, this was about into the sixth or seventh year. So okay. I was into my tw uh, 12th, 13th, 14th deal right in that area when I started raising money. Great. Um, I used to do one or two deal uh, a year and it got it uh, through a three or four year period, the uh, eight, nine, 10 and 11. I was doing, you know, three, four, five deals a year just because when the economy started shifting, people started wanting to get rid of some of their apartments because of the problems they were having. So it was a, yep. a beneficial time for me. Great. Thanks for going through that. So yeah. when we're talking about the other things that you've done to get deals done, and I like, the, I like how you're doing the entity structure. I think that's a really great takeaway. But you mentioned some other things that you've done that again, for the audience, these aren't lease options, subject tos, or syndications. These are new creative ways to buy deals, including apartment deals. And it sounds like from talking to Nathan over the last little while today, he's helped a lot of owners out of situations by utilizing these out-of-box strategies. One of the things he's done is construction loans. And so why don't you kind of take that away and say what it is that you've done with construction loans to actually um, get these deals closed and done and, and create win-wins. Yeah. So banks have in private lenders as well, they'll have construction loans where it's interest only payments for six months or 12 months, maybe 18 months, but most of them's 12 months. So it's, you know, that basically the deal is good. The bones of the complex is good. It just needs to be renovated and then it needs to get tenants in so it can start creating cash flow. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the way, most of my deals have been structured where I've had a 12 month construction loan interest only because there was no income coming in from. So I had to create a reserve account with the bank to pay the interest every month. Okay. So let's go into that because I think I know what you're saying, but I'm not sure. Is it that maybe you, you take like a million dollars from the bank and you know that your payments are a thousand a month and so, or whatever it is, we'll just use these numbers. So you know, it's, you're going to need 12 months of payments. So you just automatically put $12,000 in one account that you can't touch other than to just pay its own mortgage for itself. Correct. And the rest you're doing renovations. Right. So, you know, banks today are really skittish, especially if they, if it's not a, a really stable property. So if you find something that has a lot of deferred maintenance, it, you know, the, you get the records from the complex and they're in a box mm -hmm. and they're all handwritten. Yeah. Banks look at deals like that and they're like, man, there's a lot of risk there. Okay. So I just started, I learned early on, I want to mitigate the bank's risk as much as possible as well. So before they ever made the offer, I would go in and still do and say, okay, look, this is a million dollar deal your payment on this interest only is going to be $4,500, $5,000 a month. So I'll put 60 grand in an escrow account. Mm -hmm. So you're guaranteed every month on the first of the month, you can take your $5,000 payment out of that. Great. And it gives them the, the comfort to say, okay, well that that's good. I mean, cause then the money, we're not having to chase that. Yep. And it really helps structure. Now, in that construction loan, you also want to have the bank that at the end of the 12 months, the construction loan converts over to what you call a permanent loan, a two-year, three-year, or five-year note. 
the same loan is a it converts that's the same loan, loan converts okay because you don't want to get to the end of the 12 months have a construction note that's coming due and have your complex 65 70 percent stable so it's paying for itself but it's not stable enough where you can get a traditional loan yep so or you sell work, it so you work that out with the bank ahead of time is yes. that you suggesting that we do it this way Right, because okay. what that tells the bank is, hey, I'm thinking of every possible yep. good scenario, but also upside down scenario, and I want to protect you, but I also want to protect me, so let's go ahead and pre-plan that in 12 months, if this is not stable, this is what we're going to do. Great. I like that, how you're going through the terms, you truly are doing what you said before, you're reverse engineering, you're working backwards from everything, and you're, uh, you know, you've done car sales, and yes. you are a salesperson, and in, in the best way possible, meaning that you understand what it is that the banks want, and you just give it to them. Yeah, why, I mean, why make them, if they're the ones who's making the decision of whether you get your loan or not, don't play cat and mouse with them. Yeah. Don't give them half of a P and L. I mean, give them as much as you can because mm -hmm. the more comfortable you can make them from the beginning, the more likely they are to build a, a, a relationship with you and lend you money. Yep. A lot of times people will go into a bank wanting to do a deal and they'll bring in two pieces of paper. And they're like, oh, well, the bank won't lend to me. Well, no, they're, I mean, as much restrictions there are today, they need, the more you can bring to them, the better off you're going to be. But I think that's the same way with private money. I mean, mm -hmm. people who are going to give someone money, they want to know all the, the questions up front. I mean, where's this property located? What's the comps on it? What's the cap rate? You know, what, what do you think this is worth? Go ahead and pre-answer all the traditional questions up front so yeah. someone doesn't have to even get off on that, growing in the South, we call it rabbit trails. Don't make them chase a rabbit that's a simple question. Yeah, I've been learning a lot about that lately with our syndications. Um, I learned it slowly with just raising regular private money um, a while back. I started to say, oh, wow, if I just give them this type of information, then, they ju then they're just opening the pocketbook saying, please, you know, put this to work. Um, but if I don't say it right, uh, everybody's pocketbook is very closed. And yeah. And then it makes it harder for them to open it back up because you've created a perception in their mind that they probably don't even realize. But if you're not organized from the beginning and you don't have the sim simplest things addressed yep. in someone's mind, I mean, they're like, well, does, you know, does Nathan or does Adam really know what they're doing? Exactly. I'm glad you brought that up. And I think that's another really good takeaway for me, for you, for the audience that it, it's, it is the details that you're saying and the details you're not saying that are going to make or break um, bring, raising the private capital. You have to be able to approach it with giving them the answers that they're already looking for. So reverse engineer that, look at it yeah. backwards. We will, be, we will be moving on. And Nathan, there's a lot of stuff that I want to cover with you. So yes. I don't know if we'll actually be able to get into it all because of time, but uh, I really am enjoying this interview a lot. So thank you for being here. We're talking about next, we're talking about money in escrow and down payment reallocation. And then we kind of mentioned the low offers. Uh, if you don't ask, you don't know. 
and then due diligence. So let's let you talk about the next three things. It's going to be money and escrow, down payment, and then the due diligence with plumbing and electrical. So, you know, the, uh, the money and escrow. So one of the things I've used when, when I'm close to doing a deal with a seller, but we're, you know, $100,000 off. Mm-hmm. But there's in the rent roll, and by the way, you know, rent rolls don't mean anything. Rent rolls okay. are just a regurgitation of the lease. They have no legal binding. That is not what people are paying. It's what the lease says they should be paying. Okay. The good. only way to verify cash flow is bank statements. Tax returns, the IRS doesn't care if you inflate your money on your tax return. They only care if you decrease it. So I only go off of, ca- of bank statements. So right. if they say it's collecting 10000 but it's collecting 7000 on the bank statement, I ask for $36,000, 3000 a month for 12 months to be put into escrow. Mm-hmm. So on that first month, if I collect $8,000, the person, the seller gets 1000 back and I keep 2000 Because mm-hmm. I'm buying it on a $10,000 cash flow. Yep. But if I can't verify the 10000 I come in and ask that, that 12 months be put to cover me. And whatever the difference is, I keep and they get the, the, the rest. If I only collect 6000 I keep the full three and I lost 1000 Perfect. Perfect. So, and that's when you purchase per- properties that are cash flowing. And so I want to interject and just ask a question. Of the 26 deals apartment deals that you've done, how many of those are completely vacant and how many of those are like the one you're talking about now that have some, have some rent rolls that are showing one thing, but a bank statement that's showing another? Yeah, so ha- half of the deals I've done have been vacant Okay. or you know, 10%, 20% occupied, but no one paying. So Great. kind of squat- squatters. Economical vacancy. Yes. Uh, economical vacancy. Uh, the others have all, all of my deals have been considered unstable, low occupancy, high deferred maintenance. Mm-hmm. So all of them have had, you know, some type of escrow deal in there after the first deal I got burned. I bought a complex that was supposed to be collecting $25,000 a month. It was collecting 7000 And yeah. I didn't realize that a rent roll, I thought a rent roll meant that's what they were collecting. Yep. And most people, I think that's a fair assumption that most people think if they see a rent roll certified by a CPA, that that's what they're collecting. No, that just means that's what they, you know, the lease or what someone has misled their CPA to believe. Absolutely. So after that, it became really this, this desire to protect myself mm-hmm. and the bank by putting things into escrow. Great. And you'll find out real quick on that. I mean, when you send that over to someone, you're going to find out, uh, you know, what type of personality they have. And because you're essentially, you're calling them a liar, but you're not saying it. Yeah. There you go. I don't believe your numbers. Therefore, I want to cover myself. And I've walked away from deals, you know, just because the numbers make sense on paper. If you can't get to the numbers you need to be at, you better be really careful about moving forward with that because of what you can make. Yep. Yep. Every time I've done a deal that I could make money on, do you know what happened? You lost money? I lost money. (laughs) It's that intuition inside of us, right? Like listen to that little small voice. Great. All right. So we need to move on. Down payment reallocation. Talk about uh, what what you're saying there. 
How have you made money with this? Yeah, so you know, address that a little bit of you know running the project yourself. But mm -hmm. uh, this is one of the other benefits of working into an area. You know, I I use the same HVAC, the same electrical. I use the same vendors. I buy my products at the same store. Mm -hmm. So you know, if you're jumping around with an HVAC person and your units are four thousand dollars retail to install, if you call a different HVAC person on every deal, it's going to be roughly four thousand dollars a unit. Yeah. But I've been working with the same guy for a little over 10 years now. So almost as long as I've been doing real estate, a $4,000 unit cost me about $2,700. Great. So if you're running your deal right, and I don't think this is unethical. If you go to a bank and say, you know, I need 50 HVAC units installed and they're $4,000 each, $200,000, but it actually cost you $3,000. So you spend 150,000, there's a $50,000 savings there. If you run your numbers right and do your due diligence right, you can reallocate, you can uh, absorb, take back most of your down payment through your renovation budget. Awesome, that was a big one. Last, before we get into the final five, is talk about your plumbing and electrical due diligence, um, how, you're, yeah. how you're doing that differently from other investors. Well, so, you know, instead of, you know, most people go in and they walk, they walk the units, which I still do. That's really good. But, you know, go look at city complaints, pull two years worth of city complaints. I got burned on an $84,000 uh, uh, pipe that had burst underneath the foundation and all the tenants told me all their plumbing was fine. The day I closed it all raw sewage backed up in the bathtubs and all that. Mm. I went back and looked at the two year city complaints and there it was raw sewage in the toilet, raw sewage in the bathtub. Had I seen that, I would have known there was an issue. Right. Um, police reports, go to the police station, or most police, most areas that now are online that you can pull police reports. You know, look through, look to the third party items that you can pull that you don't have to rely on the seller, management, manager, maintenance, or tenant to tell you. Because most of the time people be honest, they're not really honest with us, right, Adam? They don't tell us the full story. Yeah, I got a lot of info from, from you that was really, really good. Pulling police reports, um, pulling the two years of city complaints, and that uh, way you don't have to, go ahead. If you wanna, if you, one last one, if you wanna see if a property is stable, go to the clerk of court and pull the eviction records and see how many times people, units, not necessarily names, are being evicted. If you see that unit number A has had five tenants in it in the last two years, make you an Excel spreadsheet. How many other, because you might see a rent roll that says, you know, we're 99% occupied, but they've only been there for three to six months. That's not a stable property. Yeah. All right. Are you ready for the final five? Yes. Final five. Let's go. Right after these messages. I'm Rod Cleef, and I'm host of the Lifetime Cashflow through Real Estate Investing Podcast. I'm also an apartment investor, and I've owned over 2,000 homes and apartments so far in my career. Now, on August 24th through the 26th, I'm going to be hosting a three-day multifamily boot camp in Chicago. And I've asked Adam Adams to be an expert on a panel there with some other members of our multifamily mastermind group. Now, if you're like me and you realize you learn so much better in full immersion at a live event with no distractions and you actually want to do your next apartment deal within the next 90 days or so, you need to text multifamily to 41411 or go to multifamilybootcamp.com right now take massive action because this event's definitely going to sell out. We've got fantastic early bird pricing right now. 
So don't wait. Go to multifamilybootcamp.com or text the word multifamily to 41411. And Adam and I look forward to seeing you in person in Chicago, August 24th through the 26th. All right, here we go. So number one, what's the most creative deal you've done? Most creative deal was offering a million seventy-five thousand one point zero seven five for the property that was listed at two point three. How much was it worth? Uh, it was worth two point nine and needed a million of renovations. So you made a million dollars that day. Made a million dollars. And what is a book that you'd recommend to the audience? Uh, number one book I recommend to everybody is the Book of Proverbs. Um, Great. You know, it is the Bible, but it has just from common sense how to deal with things. That's what I like. Perfect. Uh, where were you five years ago? Uh, five years ago, I was um, 42 pounds overweight on a bunch of pain meds for back issues. And I started uh, working on balance in my life, putting my, fam my God first, my family first, work coming after that. And I've lost all the weight off all the pain meds. Uh, I was in a good place business-wise, but not a good place personally. For the audience, he looks very healthy and uh, very healthy. You probably could run several miles right now. Yes. Uh, where will you be in five years from today? Uh, I hope to be doing, you know, the same, helping others. That's my motto. It's kind of a cheesy one of a sense of, you know, everybody says that, but, you know, I still want to continue to grow my businesses, but I want to try to help others avoid some of the simple mistakes, but costly mistakes that I've incurred. Great. Thank you. And that brings us to the next one. How do you give back? Uh, I give back. I, you know, try to help anybody that I can. Uh, I really strive to help those who are trying to help themselves. You know, you can only, the old saying, you can lead a, a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of people out there who they talk about wanting to do things, but they don't do it. Yes. So I really try to find people who are trying to do it. They just need, you know, a mentor. They need some help. They need some advice. And that's what I really strive is not just to help people, but to help people who are trying to help themselves. Perfect. How do our listeners get a hold of you? Yeah, so on my website is Nathan, N-A-T-H-A-N, Tabor, T-A-B as in boy, O-R.com. And I'm also on LinkedIn or Facebook underneath the same Nathan Tabor. Thank you so much for being here. And I'm going to let you go. Until next time, though. Think outside the box. Adam, thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye, Nathan. Right, bye. Loyal listener, I hope you got value out of today's episode. I'm focusing my efforts on bringing massive value to you. Over the past year or so, DJ and I have had an overwhelming amount of listeners reaching out to us about possibly uh, possible investment opportunities for accredited investors. So we put together a webinar to help you with just that. You'll find that link in today's show notes.